Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kastorblas, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in managed futures brought to you by CME Group. Your guest host today is Ranjan Baduri, founder, president, and CEO of Bodhi Research Group. And he's joined by three very interesting guests to discuss how managed futures should fit into your portfolio allocation and the role alternative investments play in today's investment landscape. So without further ado, here is Ranjan. Thank you so much, Niels. And I also thank the CME group. This is a very big honor and we have excellent panelists for this podcast. I'm going to allow each of the panelists to quickly introduce themselves, starting with Jonathan Miles. Hi, Ranjan. Thank you very much for having me on this podcast today. My name is Jonathan Miles, and I'm a managing director with Ascent Private Capital Management down in our Southern California office. Essentially, I'm a family CIO for uh, ultra high net worth families, uh, background in manager due diligence and in, in portfolio construction across alternatives for the last 10 plus years at various consulting firms. And I specialized in relative value in global macro strategies in that in that role. Excellent. Thank you. John Fiddler? Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. I oversee alternative investments for Commonwealth Bank and Trust. We're a, a private wealth management trust company based in Louisville, Kentucky. And we run a couple different multi-manager funds that access a variety of absolute return strategies for our clients who are primarily somewhat similar to, to Jonathan's client base, you know, family complexes, family offices, other high net worth individuals, some small to medium size endowments and foundations. And I've been started my career uh, trading futures and options back in 2001. And I've been allocating to managers since 2005 in the macro and, and managed futures space. Excellent. Excellent. And Chris? Thank you, Ranjan, and thanks to the CME as well. I'm Christopher Vogt. I'm the Director of Equity Strategies at the Margaret Cargill Philanthropies, which is a large U.S.-based foundation. In that role, I, I manage all of the equity investments uh, at, at the philanthropies. That includes uh, long-only, passive-active, as well as private equity, venture capital, and any hedge fund strategies that are linked to equities globally. Before that, I, I managed a large hedge fund portfolio for a multi-line publicly traded insurance company in the U.S. 
And previous to that, I spent over a decade in managed futures and options, both on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, as well as upstairs for a number of institutions. Excellent. Excellent. And our moderator is Ranjan Baduri. And at Bodhi Research Group, we're dealing with pensions, family offices, endowments, other financial institutions, assisting them in their investing in alternative investments, the various different kinds of projects, such as manager research, portfolio construction, due diligence, and special projects. So we have a diverse set of panelists here with a lot of different kinds of experience. And Again, the theme is how does managed futures fit into an institutional portfolio? And just looking at it from from the overall portfolio, how do you feel that managed futures fits into this? And any of you, you know, feel free to jump in and uh, and give your thoughts here. Yeah, sure. So our perspective is maybe a little bit different than, than the other panelists, but I'd say you know philosophically, when we think about portfolio construction. You know, at at its core, we want a bunch of orthogonal, diversifying return streams. And you know, how do you go about doing that? And so, I'd say we don't view managed futures so much as an asset class, as a tool to access those diversifying return streams. So, you know, not all managed future, as as all of you know, not all managed future strategies are created equal. You know, a lot of them are capturing very different timeframes, capturing very different effects. And while a lot of them do tend to be historically have tended to be centered around trend, I think, you know, the more successful and more interesting managers are kind of gravitating somewhat away from that. So our thinking is, you know, you don't have that many unique return streams in the liquid investment world. You have stocks and bonds, and then you have some subsets like, you know, real assets or commodities that have, you know, low correlation or, or, you know, less than a one correlation to those assets, but they're still going to be, you know, have a pretty clear risk dependency to economic growth, especially in the short run. And when we look at our investors, you know, 90% of the client portfolios that, that come to us, you know, high net worth folks, family complexes, whatever, 90% of the time they're getting 90% of their return from, or 90% of their risk, or at least their volatility from sort of U.S. large cap equities. And so, you know, right now with 10-year yields, you know, what are they this morning? Two, three, two, four, you know, bonds don't seem like a great risk reward. So the question is, you know, how do you find return streams that are orthogonal to stocks and bonds? And how do you you build a portfolio that's, you know, not all piled into, you know, a couple factors? And we've found that because managed future strategies can source from you know, hundreds of loosely correlated or or in some cases non-correlated uncorrelated markets and because they can employ a whole bunch of different strategy styles and timeframes, you know, those strategies naturally lend themselves to providing those orthogonal return streams. And, you know, our research shows, and, you know, this was, has not been, was not borne out in sort of the 2015, 16, 17 period, but, but it, it worked for us last year, at least that, you know, over the long run, if you have say 10% allocation to those types of strategies, they tend to reduce your portfolio volatility by, you know, about a percentage point and increase your returns by by about the same. And, you know, again, that hasn't been true the last couple of years, but that is the long-term trend line. So, you know, that's that's why we allocate to them. No, thank you. There were a lot of nuggets of uh, wisdom and insights that we can take from what you just stated. Uh, you mentioned 
the orthogonal drivers and, and true diversification, liquidity. Before we delve into some of those topics um, and subtopics more in the more detail, Jonathan or Chris, do you have anything to add with regards to your 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 philosophy on portfolio construction and where managed futures fits in for an institutional portfolio? I would, yeah, this is Jonathan. I would love to just make a quick comment because one of the things, you know, I came from an environment where I was advising, you know, pensions and, and endowments around just alternatives. And now I sit in the seat where I'm advising on a whole portfolio, right? And so I think the one thing that came away immediately is, is I go from the perspective of telling clients what the best managers are or who the best managers are or the best ways to combine hedge funds and, and, some, and private credit versus now I have to say, should I even be doing that, right? Is it even additive relative to the liquidity profile of my clients, their investment horizon? And diversification for the sake of diversification actually isn't worth it for us because most of our clients have such a long-term horizon, they can ride out volatility. So to put anything into a portfolio, it has to be additive, right? It either has to be, provide a positive expected return and it has to be something that I can use as a ballast in a portfolio if I want to rebalance, right? So in other words, if I'm going to allocate to a strategy, it has to be a source of liquidity necessarily, or excuse me, when I'm talking specifically about CTAs, it has to be a source of liquidity if I want to rebalance, right? That's how the diversification helps me, right? Because otherwise, if I'm not going to rebalance and I'm putting my capital in a strategy that actually isn't going to perform as well over 10 years as another asset that my client's willing to hold, then I might as well just hold the asset that's going to have the highest return over 10 years. So, but I can't guarantee that, right? So I think that's, that's a very different perspective as opposed, and I don't have to report to a board on a quarterly or annual basis, right? I just have to just, I have to think about the next five to 10 years. So I think that really kind of changes that's really changed my perspective in terms of, of where CTAs fit because I'm a, I've, I'm a huge believer in the strategies. And it, it just means that the hurdle and their use has to be much more defined, right? And it, it, it has changed the conversation that I have with clients about when to use them, particularly when my clients are usually business owners who have built businesses and they have a hard time understanding what a CTA is to begin with. So from that standpoint, you know, there's a handful of alternative strategies that we want to employ, and they tend to be ones like managed futures and systematic macro, which we think over the long run can be orthogonal to traditional risk assets, right? They take advantage of market inefficiencies, but they don't need a rising, growing economy in order to generate returns. And so that's something that can resonate when with clients when we're putting together a portfolio. So I think that's a, a little different perspective than maybe some other people might have about using them. Yeah, this is Christopher. I, I tend to agree with what Jonathan just said. We have a, a macro mandate here, but we don't have a, a I'll call it managed futures mandate, but ma the managed futures would fit into that into that macro mandate. And, you know, the, the, I think uh, likewise, you know, we're less, I guess, concerned or, or worried about volatility than we are maybe uh, permanent destruction of capital. The other thing I'd make a note of is that if, if managed futures are uh, or managed futures manager or a basket of them is uncorrelated to, to risk assets, you know, modern portfolio theory would, would indicate that there isn't much excess return, if any, there. 
Uh, so I think as a group, it's it's sometimes uh, challenging to 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 find um, returns uh, depending on how many managers mm. you have, which leads me to believe that it's a tactical allocation rather than a strategic allocation. So I guess that's kind of where where uh, where we're at uh, with respect to uh, to the role uh, in in the portfolio. So a lot of very interesting comments there, and and Jonathan, you stated that. In, in some ways, with the long time horizon, it changes, you know, you, you view it that that changes the philosophy, but then the way that you articulated it, it also shows that, in my view, you're doing a lot of the things, you know, it, it is somewhat similar in the sense that it's just a different time horizon. So you're looking at a 10-year time horizon, so therefore going into an illiquid investment such as a private equity or venture capital infrastructure can fit in uh, nicely and it can it can be you know add to diversification but mm-hmm. in looking at those kinds of investments when you make a investment in private equity and it's a 7 to 12 year kind of commitment once you commit you're committed in the mm-hmm. sense that portion of your portfolio is is in essence you know, you can't rebalance, you can't reallocate, it's a changing dynamic landscape. So that portion of your portfolio is sort of paralyzed, but not not in a bad way paralyzed, but it's just, you're not able to use, deploy that capital or change that, change your mind in, in any kind of way. Uh, Which, just a quick comment, we used to, it's, yeah. we would often say that people are protected from bad decision making when they've committed their capital like that. Right, they they can't shoot themselves in the foot because they can't do anything with it. <laughs> so they won't. There won't be any of the behavioral biases that are present when you actually do have liquidity. Yeah, I, I disagree with that. I okay. think that that's yeah. And in fact, I've I've I, I disagree quite quite a lot on that because then what you're doing it's a convenient argument, right? Like it's asymmetric. The investor is smart enough to make a good decision when they go in. They're just not smart enough to, you know, to make a, a, a good decision when they get out. And, and that's sort of what is proven in behavioral finance is that people tend to underestimate the value of liquidity. Mm. And, okay. and, and that's, that's like, again, that's not stating at all that one shouldn't go into less liquid assets like private equity or infrastructure. But it goes back to what you stated earlier, Jonathan, which I very much agree with is that you need to be paid properly for that illiquid investment. And therefore, on a liquid scale too, it can't be just, hey, it's liquid and that's good enough. If it's not over a 10-year time horizon going to be additive to your portfolio, it doesn't necessarily belong. But but the other piece of it, I think that's why we're, we're all here, mm-hmm. right, doing these kind of decisions. And that's why it's important to have a process, which I know all of you adhere by you've you've spent a lot of time creating a very rigorous process to mitigate the the possibility of doing an impetuous kind of decision but but that's again very very interesting with the different time horizons and the and the and the liquidity and the diversity and therefore with regards to the target volatility for the longer time horizon it's it's less of an issue does that mean that you're willing to be more aggressive on the liquid side of when you do allocate? Am I willing to be more aggressive on the liquid side when I do allocate? Well, well, I didn't want to give the impression that we don't allocate to liquid strategies because we run diversified portfolios. 
it was more we want to we we try to get clients to focus on what are the most important decisions that they should be making and the idea the concept behind not that that private equity or going into private capital structures helps eliminate some of the behavioral biases is that everybody has a tendency to trace performance and so you tend to invest at the wrong time and you and then when they underperform you redeem so you redeem at the wrong time right and we and there's no there's no persistency in quartile performance among, among traditional long-only managers, but very little, right? So I think that's that's where the comment comes from. And, and you're right, it is sort of a, it's a heuristic crutch, right, to go into private capital because then you don't have to make a decision on getting out, right? You just have to make the right decision going in. You don't have to worry about the exit. So we view the, the liquid side as more of the, as a placeholder of like, liquid could be equities, liquid could be fixed income. Liquid could be global macro, so it isn't risk in the liquid side isn't really a factor per se. I'd say all else being equal, I would love to have a very barbelled portfolio of very illiquid strategies and a and very liquid, and then on the other end, very liquid orthogonal strategies, right? And then use deviations in returns or asset classes to sort of be be. I don't want to say tactical, but be opportunistic in how I move capital back and forth between those two. And I would probably use the liquid fixed income and liquid equity as a, as a sort of a ballast in the middle, right? And have that be a sort of a diversified part of the portfolio, if that made any sense at all. But <laughs> no, that makes a, makes, a lot of, makes a lot of sense. The barbell approach can be very, very effective. Um, Chris, in terms, of, in terms of just looking at Emerging managers first established managers. Do you have any viewpoints on that with regards to your portfolio construction and and your risk budgeting? I do. Would you mind if I made a few comments on the on the last topic? Not at all. Not at all. Oh, Please do. Okay. Uh, first, you know, as a former floor trader, I I, I I completely agree that it's it's harder. It's always easy to to get into a trade or to find something that you like. And it's much harder to, to get out or to sell that trade. So I think that is absolutely the heuristic crutch uh, of, of private equity is that you don't actually have to make the decision to sell. That made, that's, that's been uh, pushed away from you. And it's made easier by not getting mark to market, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah, that, and that improves your sharp ratio. Exactly. And that's where I was going to go with the whole target volatility. Well, I don't think I have a lot to say in this area. I would say, you know, as I mentioned before, for us, it's about drawdown and about maintaining grant-making consistency in any market environment. And then I would also kind of pose a question that is like, what does volatility even mean in the context of a, of a portfolio where a large portion of the investments are illiquid and thus they're marked in arrears and there's ball smoothing going on? And, and I, I think you, the, the volatility of the portfolio becomes almost a, a kind of a very difficult thing to actually put a fine point on. Maybe I can move over to uh, your comment on emerging versus established managers. This is something I've followed for a long time, going back over a decade. And uh, there were many pieces, I think, in the, maybe the early to mid-2000s that talked about how it's better to have be an emerging manager, that there's, there's higher alpha levels, uh, et cetera. And while I think there's good kind of economic rationale that supports that from an anecdotal perspective, I'm super, super cautious at this point in time about whether that's actually true or not. I think it, particularly with selection bias, survivorship, backfill, things along those lines, it's not obvious to me anymore that emerging is always going to be established or that there's a theme there that, that can be a, or a kind of a permanent 
premium, if you will, that, that you can latch on to. I think maybe those papers that were written back then, particularly in the early 2000s, was at a time when inflows into, I'll call it hedge funds or managed futures or, or, or alternative assets, was artificial. The, the operational risks to those funds were, were was artificially lowered because there was so much capital flowing in. I think in today's world, uh, it's much harder for those groups to raise capital. And I think the operational risk perspective is, is a lot higher in terms of how we kind of establish or how we deal with this or, or, or handle it is we, we do invest in emerging managers kind of across the portfolio. What we do is we have a risk budgeting approach that takes that into perspective with respect to sizing those investments. But we also document, call it certain triggers that would call for re-underwriting if there was uh, problems or issues. I think with respect to separately with, the, with the managed futures is one of the benefits of managed futures is you can typically achieve a, a separate account or a managed account where you actually own the asset and can see the assets to specific trades in the account, which allows for position level analysis. And that is a very powerful tool relative to just having a, a monthly or a quarterly statement of what the fund's performance was. And then lastly, I would say that, uh, you know, a strong operational due diligence effort is, is needed as well, which I think many institutions either lack or don't uh, don't focus on as much because it it requires uh, you know there's an expense to it and it's something that's often overlooked by investment teams and i think that investment teams that are not doing ops dd are you know really it's really hurting their portfolio and and it, uh, operational due diligence should not be thought of as a as a cost center and in fact it can be there can be a lot of structural alpha uh, but i completely agree with what you just said chris so it's sad actually that there's groups out there that are still not paying proper attention to the to the operational due diligence uh, component in terms of looking at how you see the managed futures, and, and this can also include the macro space evolving, what are your thoughts there? I, I, I mean, there's a lot going on with machine learning, with you know, new markets and, 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 and China and so forth. Um, uh, what do you see the future for, for managed futures? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's... The, the future for a lot of, you know, I think traditional managed future strategies that, that, that focus on, you know, medium to long-term trend, you know, to, to me is not great. You know, I think all of asset management full stop, whether it's managed futures or hedge funds or long only or ETFs, I mean, there's, there's fee pressure across the board. So if you just think about, you know, what's a good business, you know, I don't think there's many managers, period, anywhere that have a lot of pricing power at this point in time. And I think there's very few managed futures managers who have any pricing power. And I hear that when I talk to managers, they say, oh yeah, we can raise money for a trend following strategy. For instance, we can raise a lot of money for it, but we can only charge 50 basis points for it. It's not even a one, in, you know, it's not an incentive fee product. And so I think it's difficult for the vast majority of, of managers. Things have become, you, know, you talked about the, the operational due diligence, and that's important, I agree, you know, particularly when you have strategies that are, you know, run complicated, complex portfolios with a lot of line items or have multiple portfolio managers or something. But like I was at M MFA this year and there was a guy, kind of a, you know, super emerging manager, sort of a two-man shop, 
he had, I don't know, $20 million in her management. And I heard this guy asking him who his administrator was, as though that was like a real relevant question, like he was interviewing Bridgewater or something. So I think but my point is that the, the industry has become so institutionalized and you have to be able to check all these boxes to raise a lot of money, like all these operational due diligence boxes that you know you have a situation where five or ten percent of the managers are raising you know ninety percent of the AUM. So if you're a startup manager or you're a smaller manager, you know, you have to sort of grow or die and you have to invest in your in your organization in order to grow. So I think you know it's a difficult business. From a strategy perspective, you know, you mentioned some of the things I would touch on. I mean it, it, it's not clear to me that trend following per se is a is a very good strategy. And I think your your sort of big king factors of like momentum, carry value have been have been you know pretty commoditized. So I think you know managers are gonna have to do other things strategy wise to survive. And that may mean, you know, new markets like you're talking about alternative data. There was an article just yesterday in the FT about how much money, you know, hedge fund managers broadly are spending on alternative data. Maybe it's more relative value trading and in, in, instrument selection as opposed to directional trading but i think you know systematic directional trading based solely on price and volume is seems like an increasingly hard way to make money especially if we're going to be in some sort of japan-esque you know central bank manipulated world where volatility is you know suppressed so i think the managers that succeed are going to have to do things that are different from what might have succeeded you know 10 or 20 years ago Ranjan, can I make a quick comment on that as well? Please do. Yeah. So, Thank so you. the first thing when when I think about the evolution of the industry, the first thing I think of is, and we haven't mentioned it yet, is is our, our risk premium strategies. And this is something that we were doing. We we did did a lot of work on at when I was at Wilshire Associates, and we applied. It, it really is for our for for us at that firm. It transformed how we looked at managed futures. And systematic macro managers, right? It was, in essence, risk premia became a potential source of beta that made it easier. And we built models to do this, identify CTA managers who were one, easy to replicate, and two, didn't have any alpha versus that replicated beta. So I think that is the overarching, and, and I think John really hit it. He's talking about the end result of that is there's Alpha, in essence, even if it can be, or the returns can be orthogonal, but there might not be alpha. And so I think that's the situation we're in right now is that these strategies are still additive to a, to a, to a portfolio because they're orthogonal, but, but we can actually get, get the beta really much cheaper now than we used to be able to, right? And that's why managers are, are raising trend-following products at 50 basis points. They're, they're adapting to that market. And that's why we've seen managers... You hit a hit it on the head, John. In terms of like looking for new new data, they're going into alternative markets. They're trying to create premium versions of their products. So I think that's I think we're going to see more of that. And, and I kind of thought of it as the barbelling of the market. Right, you're going to have managers who who will have passive index products, and then they'll they'll try to sell some some alpha products on next to them, or they might just go all passive. Right, they might just raise all like AQR raising all of their money in a managed future strategy. That's really a beta product. We just there was just right. a panel about this at a at a conference. Well, well, what is beta in this space? 
And, and so, you know, we're begging the question a little bit that there is a beta because how you define the trend following model can determine whether you have alpha or not relative to that. Because what's your time frame, what markets, uh, what's your risk allocation, things like that. So there, it's really hard to define a beta, but it still is an arrow in our quiver. But the idea, it's really transformed how we look at the space. So I think that's that's really important. And that's been the driver of the commoditization of the space and the competitive pressure to lower fees, which is all good for investors, right? Because the strategies are still worth investing in. So I, I, I want to just add a couple things onto that. And I, I've always wondered, looking at different risk premium products, why they seem to, many of them, not, not all, but many correlate to, to CTA or managed futures indices. And I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this. Again, I don't really manage a managed portfolio or managed futures portfolios anymore. But I, my, my wild guess is there is a momentum factor in CTA, particularly mm-hmm. for trend following, and that it's picking Absolutely. up on that it's picking up on that somehow. Um, the other thing I was going to say, kind of going back to the original question on how we see the space evolving. Again, I, I don't follow it, so I don't think I have many intelligent things to say about it. But as, as was already noted. I think trend has become incredibly commoditized, no pun intended. I also think that uh, you know alpha decay is is very real, particularly in in the shorter term strategies. And I think that that would probably accelerate as machine learning and artificial intelligence becomes more prevalent. Just think about uh, computing power twenty years ago versus today, and and you know take take AI and, and machine learning and, and forward that another twenty years from now. Um, if I can comment on one area that I that I heard another uh, person say recently uh, that I thought made sense is that, you know, with respect to kind of value strategies and equities, there's 2,000, more than 2,000 books on Amazon on value investing. There's something like 10,000 people on uh, Quantopia that are basically uh, looking for anomalies in stock prices. I think it's, you know, the number of stocks have shrunk in, in, in the past, you know, by a lot in the past 20 years or so. The number of sell-side analysts divided by the number of public companies is at an all-time high. And quant processing is so cheap. I mean, you can all buy computers for almost nothing today. And I think that may lead to a, I mean, if I can make the analogy into, into managed futures, that, that that might make it much more challenging as we go forward, uh, given that there's so much easy, inexpensive quant processing uh, to search for anomalies or for alpha opportunities. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.